This week, we've seen the biggest ever defeat for a government in the United Kingdom's Parliament. The Australian government is coming for your superannuation, and despite all the chatter around it, it seems that 75% of Australians want to keep celebrating Australia Day on January 26th. All this and more in today's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of politics and culture presented by the Institute of Public Affairs and recorded in its Melbourne studio. Today is Friday, January 18th, and I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Joining me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Chris Berg, leading light of RMIT and prolific author. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Also, my colleague, Daniel Wilde, Director of Economics at the IPA. G'day. And our special guest, Sinclair Davidson, economist, libertarian, author of many books, including a very famous and provocative one on how to privatise the ABC. Welcome, Sink. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Uh, Now, this is our first episode of Looking Forward. Uh, Chris Berg. Tell us a little bit about the big question, as always, is why are we here? Why are we here? Look, this is a idea that we've been tossing around for some months, and it's become abundantly clear um, that there's a need for a podcast like this to discuss Australian politics from a centre-right, libertarian, classical, liberal, conservative perspective. And that's not just because we think there's a gap in the market, which is always always nice to follow, but but really because we're in a, I think we're in a really critical situation in Australian politics and global politics right now. This is the right time to be trying to not just talk about the politics of the day, which, which we're going to do, but try to um, get down to the significance of those political ideas, to rebuild hopefully the liberalism, the conservatism that we're going to need to look forward into the next decade as well. So this is a podcast with, you know, some some modest ambitions to rejuvenate to re- save the to, country. To save the country. And liberal democracy. And, and and all that sort of thing. But but I think this is the, the right format to do it and I'm I'm really looking forward to it, Scott. And why are we calling it Looking Forward, Chris? Oh sure. So um, looking forward, of course, which I should have said, looking forward, it was the first IPA pod uh, not podcast, the first IPA publication published in nineteen forty four. It was a um, document spelling out what the centre right should be pursuing in the post-war period. Now, that's a really important time to be discussing what what you should what what the centre right should be discussing because socialism was ascendant. The idea that the war economy, the planned economy, had been so successful. Why don't we do the same thing in peacetime? And the IPA's document spelt out what alternative um, free market, free enterprise, private enterprise model should should be pursued. This was a hugely influential yeah. publication. Robert Menzies wrote, read from it in um, the first session of the Liberal Party. Um, uh, it was it was very important. And, and we just think picking up those ideas, picking up the idea of um, rejuvenating political ideas, looking forward into the future is exactly what we need to be doing right yeah. now. Let's take inspiration from that. Cometh the hour, cometh the podcast. Here we are. As, <laughs> as you say, Chris, we are uh, going to be prompted by the issues of the day, however, and there's certainly a, a lot going on in the world that we need to unpack. So we are going to start with Brexit in the United Kingdom, uh, the, the rolling crisis. Uh, just in the last week or so, we've seen uh, a massive vote uh, against Theresa May's Brexit plan, Three, 432 votes to 202, the worst ever defeat by a uh, British government in the parliament. Uh, But then when uh, a motion of no confidence uh, was moved in Theresa May's government, uh, that motion was lost uh, by 325 to 306. So we've got a government which notionally has the confidence of the parliament but can't actually do any governing. Is the Westminster system broken, Chris? (laughs) No, it's not broken. Um, uh, It is in a really interestingly challenging position at the moment. And the idea of having a plebiscite or a referendum into whether the the UK should stay in the European Union is not part of the Westminster system. The Westminster system is intended to be structured around representative democracy and those representatives interpret what their electorate wants and then, then represent those ideas in Parliament. We're seeing a clash, however, between what the British public said that they wanted in a single question 
um, referendum and what their representatives, their nominal representatives um, uh, uh, who are trying to implement that wish um, actually want. Or I, not trying to implement Or not it. trying to implement that wish in, in the case. And so I, I think the, the real problem is that we have to align the parliamentary representatives with the people. And the way that we normally do that is through elections. We, and, and this is what I think one of the deep problems that the United Kingdom has, which not a lot of people talk about, is they have these five-year election cycles. Um, and, you know, the, the UK needs an election to figure out what the, what the representatives should be representing. Well, I, I think this is a fascinating thing because I would actually like to see more instances where the parliament actually overrule the government. Uh, this whole notion of the separation of powers is something that we don't take too seriously in Westminster systems. We kind of say, oh, yeah, the judiciary off somewhere else. But in actual fact, we have an executive and a legislature. And the legislature should actually hold the executive accountable and actually say, no, you're not doing this or yes, you are doing that more often. So I think it's fantastic that uh, uh, the, the parliament have actually voted down the executive and, and yeah, well, more strength to them. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, but, uh, but that, as uh, Chris said, though, the, we do have this, in this particular instance, this unusual situation, not unusual, sorry, very common situation that the uh, representatives in the parliament want something different to what the actual people want. And these are the political class in Britain in the lead up to that uh, vote uh, by the people were making many predictions of economic catastrophe that uh, GDP was going to drop by 3% and there was a, trade was going to come to collapse just by because of the vote, let alone actually leaving. <laughs> Dan, Daniel Wild, what's, uh, take us through that. Uh, well, it was uh, Project Fear when you had the entire <laughs> political, economic, financial establishment saying uh, there's going to be economic collapse and calamity that's going to occur if Britain votes for Brexit. And it's important to remember that it really was the entire establishment. It was all the financial firms, Treasury, the central banks, um, the major political parties, anyone of note, the major papers, the academics, they're all piling on saying it's going to be project fear. But we know uh, that nothing of the like has happened. We know that the unemployment rate in Britain has just continued to trickle down. Uh, since they voted uh, to leave, we know that the stock market is doing what stock markets always do, going up and down. There's no um, obvious negative impact associated with Brexit. And even Paul Krugman today, the far, far to the left on the economic spectrum, said that Brexit isn't going to be that bad, that Britain will be able to negotiate a free trade agreement as all sovereign nations are able to do, um, and that there's not going to be a significant economic no, negative economic consequence. And But it gets to a more important issue, which is, Brexit wasn't about economics. It was about sovereignty and about culture. That's what people voted for. So this idea was, you know, the uh, the rubes living in the Midlands and the, the north of England didn't know what was in their own interests. But um, as a matter of fact, what they were concerned about was actually having control over the laws. We know that over 50% of the regulations that are enforced in England today are from Europe and they don't have any say over those laws. We know that there's concern about the movement of people and the movement of capital without having um, a sovereign on top of that. So that's what Brexit was really about. It wasn't driven by economic uh, considerations. Indeed, and, and that's where uh, not all the votes against Theresa May's plan were on this ground, but certainly many of them in the Conservative Party, the Tories, were on the grounds that it was about sovereignty. And what, But what she has actually negotiated is a deal where that, those power to make the rules and enforce them over the UK somehow remain, even mm. though you're notionally mm. taken out of the EU. Um, so I have a question for Sink, which is, she's negotiated that and basically been, you know, pummeled by the EU negotiators because she thinks she needs to cut a deal. The alternative, of course, is just to walk away. The so-called no-deal Brexit. Yes. Sink, is that as disastrous as? Uh, the political class says it is? No, no. The the whole concept of having an individual country making individual laws and having an independent trade policy is actually how the world, generally speaking, works. Um, they would be in the same position as most other countries are in the world. It's including just that, Australia. Including Australia, including everybody, as a matter of fact. Um, so this whole notion that you have to have a deal with Europe is is, is almost a, a philosophical slavery that uh, uh, the, the, the British elite have got themselves into is that they just cannot imagine 
imagine a future where bureaucrats in Brussels aren't telling them what to do. So uh, a lack of imagination, um, a, a lack of, of, of courage, a lack of faith, um, it, it reflects very poorly upon them all around. This notion that they can't leave without a deal. It's like you're, you're half divorced. It, it, um, it is remarkable. And Daniel mentioned Paul Krugman, uh, the uh, dreadful Keynesian. But, um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you actually linked to that article on your Facebook page, I, I, I saw Sink, and I, I, I think did. he said it was, it was no different to say Canada pre-NAFTA. Yeah, that, that is Canada seem to do all right? Um, yes, everybody seems to do all right. This is how the world works. I mean, the, 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 the British are actually saying at the moment, oh, we'd be operating under the World Trade Organization rules. Well, actually, the World Trade Organization is not such a bad organization. I mean, I wouldn't encourage it. But um, and, and, and on the other hand, to, to, to be fair to Krugman, he's actually a very good economist. Um, he's just a, a terrible columnist. <laughs> um, uh, so, so on, on his, his, his economic instincts, so th- that article that came out of the the, uh, uh, the New York Times. Times and then also today in the Financial Review is actually very good. It says, you know, in the long run, the UK will do well out of Brexit. Uh, there will be short run costs, but we know this. This is always true. So I'm not at all worried uh, about a, a no deal Brexit. As a matter of fact, I think that would have been the ideal situation if they had voted to say we are leaving and like next week, guys, we're off. Ciao. See you. We love you all madly. Um, we're out the door. So the the other side of this, and um, I'll uh, throw this open, is on the other side of the negotiation position is the EU, of course, uh, which has done absolutely nothing to help Theresa May, has um, put together a deal that has been soundly rejected. Allegedly, they're, they're shocked. Um, uh, what? Why? Uh, what's in it for the EU, or how concerned are they with all of this? Chris Berg? Look, look the, the, the EU is taking a, an approach that is also trying to dissuade other countries from leaving the EU as well. So they don't want to look like they're an easy touch. They don't want it to look like Britain gets a big win out of um, leaving the EU because that would just encourage them, uh, other countries, to do the same. But the other thing is, of course, that there are ideological and ph- philosophical objections that many European states have. Um, and it, it, Dan and I were in Sweden a couple of years ago and we were meeting a lot of Swedish bureaucrats because um, uh, Sweden's actually done a lot of red on red tape reduction. And the Swedes there were quite devastated that the Brits had left the European Union because um, they saw themselves, Sweden and, and the United Kingdom, as this sort of free trade liberal powerhouse together and um, as soon as the United Kingdom left then all the UK bureaucrats operating in 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 the EU who were relatively free market compared to their European counterparts from France and Germany or whatever um, uh, just disappeared and took away a lot of that deep liberal or free market or free enterprise um, uh, influence within the European Union um, uh, bureaucracy. And I think the absence of that is also part of the explanation. The Europe that the UK is leaving right now is not the same as the Europe they were in because it doesn't have the influence of United Kingdom bureaucrats. Indeed. And um, just because we are looking forward, one of the uh, other possibilities that this throws up is we we hear all about the um, conservative Brexiteers simply because the media, I think, loves to report uh, on the splits in the Tory party. But uh, there are many, many in the Labor Party that are very interested in, in Brexit. So what um, what are the chances that it might actually be Corbyn that delivers Brexit? Uh, quite quite small, I would say. <laughs> Corbyn, to, be, to be honest, I think... I know so you're going in one you, direction, but yeah, I wanted to... Um, now I've got to, uh, of March. Yeah, I've got to speak, got to speak <laughs> the truth. Sorry, as I see it, as I see it. But, power. No, look, um, the, the reality is that Brexit won't happen. That was voted for. Um, the, the establishment has been slow walking this thing from day one. It's been clear that they don't want it to happen. Two thirds of the British Parliament are against it. Theresa May is against it. The majority of the Tories are against it. The majority of the Labor Party is against it. Um, the reality is what will happen is they'll try to extend Article 50. That's what the European bureaucrats want to do. Um, I think that's what will happen. So what, what that would mean is that under Article 50, which has incidentally already been enacted by the British Parliament, uh, means that um, at the end of March, Britain would be out of the EU. I think that'll be extended, um, if not to the end of the year, then indefinitely. I just don't think Brexit will happen. Certainly not the Brexit that was voted for, because the only Brexit is a hard Brexit. People weren't asked, do you want to leave conditional on 
being in the customs union, people will ask, do you want to leave? And yes. leave means leave and it's not going to happen. Except, except uh, this is something that I, I, I've raised. I remember raising this question with Dan Hannon as well. The problem is that the European Union regulations, the European Union structures are now, after decades, so deeply built into the political economy of the United Kingdom. So let's say there's a hard Brexit tomorrow. Just imagine what the hardest of hard Brexit is. All the European laws will stay on the books in the United Kingdom because those European laws, they're not really European laws, they're, they're provisions within European law that have been translated into UK law. So the task that they have, even in the hardest Brexit, even in the, um, uh, even in the greatest reclamation of their sovereignty, is actually a long-run deregulation process that has to begin yes, but on day one. But that process can actually then start occurring. At the moment, it's simply increasing. So uh, the European Union came up with a new proposal during the week that um, I think it was any any economies that have got 55% of uh, the population and 65% of economic activity or something like that uh, can actually now set rules for the rest of the European Union. So that's basically France and Germany can impose their will on the rest of the European Union by uh, invoking their population size and their relative you know, economic size. Um, now, in in Constitutions like in Australia, we actually have built into our constitution that New South Wales and Victoria cannot dominate the union. So in actual fact, that's actually a form of colonialism. And I'm, I'm not at all surprised that the Brits want to leave and actually have a hard Brexit and actually saying we don't need a Supreme Court. Our old high court was good enough. We don't need unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. And that has always been the problem, the unelected bureaucrats telling us what to do. I think this uh, we'll be talking about this in future episodes. I have I have no doubt because it's it is a lock in a regular Brexit. <laughs> it's not just about the UK. It is about uh, sovereignty. It is about democracy, and it's about uh, the future of the EU, which is very troubled. Uh, closer to home, we had uh, last week the Productivity Commission, uh, which is our foremost economic advisory body, allegedly, apart from the IPA, um, <laughs> produced a doorstopper of a report on our superannuation system. Uh, there, there's a lot to that. Uh, everyone has an interest in super, literally, um, no matter how pathetic one's account may be. Um, but Sink, what was the uh, the thrust of the Productivity Commission report and what, what have people been focusing on in the period since? So as, as I see it, there, there were a few things that came out of it. First of all, the conservative side of politics have long been worried about the default options in superannuation. They are worried about competition going in and competition within the system and uh, generally speaking about the expense and cost of superannuation. So going in reverse order, I think the expense and cost of superannuation is a problem, has always been a problem. I, I find it uh, almost abominable that I am compelled by the government to save 9.5% of my income or more as the case may be, and I get charged market rates for that. Um, that has always struck me as being a bit crazy. So um, I would start off, if, if the government were to come out and say, we're going to start regulating the compulsory aspect of superannuation like a utility and actually put in price caps and fees, and th that wouldn't worry me in the least. There's, there's a lot of compulsion in there, and some of that compulsion should work in the interests of, of, of superannuants. Um, the idea about competition going in and going out and consumers being apathetic, um, I'm less excited about that because consumers are always apathetic. So the <laughs> argument is you, you can't say to some 20-year-old, you should think very carefully about your super because when you're 60, you're going to need the money. Now, to be quite honest, if 20-year-old Sinclair knew what 50-year-old Sinclair knows, I would have made a whole bunch of different decisions. Uh, that is always true. So that bit mm. we can say, okay, it's, it's not that exciting. Um, the default option. Now, what worries a lot of people on the centre-right is that a lot of the default options are industry funds which are maintained by the unions, and, and apparently the, this is a terrible thing. Now, it may or may not be a terrible thing, but it doesn't worry me that there is actually a default, that you go to an employer and they say, our super fund of choice is this one and if you don't have any idea what you want to do we're going to put you into this one seems an inescapable feature this of the system that also, there has to be a default there will always be a default now the the howard costello government 
I think it might have been 96, 97 in the early before, days. Perhaps before we go back to that. So what, what, what exactly, though, has the um, – and perhaps, uh, Daniel, what, what, what did the Productivity Commission actually propose? Well, the, the idea is that you'd have a, a so-called expert panel that is supposed to be independent of government, even though they're drawing a paycheck from government. Somehow they magic will be independent, independent and impervious <laughs> to corruption and all Completely these things. Completely independent, yeah. And they will, through their, you know, through their brain it? and through their genius – be able to know what's in people's interests rather than themselves and they'll come up with a best in show uh, 10 list of super funds that people can be defaulted into um, rather so, than... So something different to the industry fund. Yeah, rather than just being defaulted into a, an industry or, or fund. Which picking winners as we used to call it in the picking audience. Picking winners. So um, that's, that's what they've proposed. Now that is an absolutely terrible idea. Um, the report is a thousand pages long, three years to tell us what we already knew about super. It and was a waste other, of the other it was largely a waste of time. I'll just make this one before, point sorry, one point quickly, which is that the report doesn't even consider the fundamental premise of super, which is compulsory. So I hundred percent agree with Sync that yeah, if you have a compulsory system, let's nationalise it. There's no point in having this halfway house of having these regulatory interventions, more power to ASIC, more power to APRA, more experts. We need to be evaluating whether compulsory super is a good idea. And I think the best default option or the best option that should be given to workers is do you want to be in the system or not? That should be the first box that they see on their workplace form. Do you want to be in super or do you not want to be in super? Um, meaning, do you want to give up 9.5% of your salary and put that into the future or do you want to have 9.5% of your salary now so you can pay down your mortgage, save up for a home, put your kids into a good school? The other, the other very bad idea that's been floating around is that somehow we should all default into the future fund, um, which I think is a shockingly bad idea. I mean, in my ideal world, the future fund itself would be wound down and used to pay down national debt and then be used to pay uh, tax cuts and what have you. So uh, we shouldn't. the only reason we have a future fund is because the federal government itself is an irresponsible employer. Um, because it was created to uh, superannuation of, of unfunded superannuation of, of federal uh, bureaucrats. Um, where I disagree slightly with Dan is that I don't worry too much about there being compulsory super because what's going to happen is somebody's going to be coerced. Either I'm going to be coerced to pay for the age pensions of other people who didn't save or they're going to be coerced to pay for their own uh, um, pension. So forcing people to, to, to pay for or to save up some of their own money for their own pensions doesn't worry me that much. In the grand scheme of things, of course, ideally it wouldn't be there, but there are so many other things that we should be worrying about first. Um, but I, I just kind of feel that this is almost like a political hit job on, 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 the super, on the super industry. Now, there are things to be cleaned up. I mean, I would bring in a sole purpose test, that the only purpose of a superannuation fund is to provide retirement income, which means no donations, no kickbacks to unions, no funding the ballet, none of that. <laughs> All of that money goes straight into Super, super boxes at the football. Uh, yeah, yeah, none of that. All of that I would... Why do you hate Australia, yeah. Coach? <laughs> Why are you such a Philistine? All of that. Now, now, um, but, uh, now Chris yeah. Berg, you've, you've been following this. Uh, for a long time uh, during your time at the IPA and, and in academe, the, uh, in a sense, it, it already is nationalised uh, super and this, this has all kinds of uh, flow-on effects. Do you think, uh, will governments ever leave superannuation or our retirement savings alone? Well, no, no, obviously they won't. And part of the reason for that is because they rightly recognise that um, if superannuation doesn't work, then they're going to be paying the pension. It's important to recognise... So we are going to be paying well, we, other we, people's yeah, pensions. Sorry, they, the royal they. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so it's important to recognise that, that super... Uh, superannuation as a policy, as a compulsory superannuation policy, is an experimental product. Um, uh, it has only been going for a couple of decades by now, um, which means that the first people to seriously be using superannuation are only starting to work their way through the system. And my understanding is that um, uh, more people are on the pension than they expected would be um, when, when they first established the compulsory system in the early 1990s. And this is always going to be a, uh, this is always going to be a problem with any serious retirement or superannuation policy because retirement planning for retirement is a public policy that needs a 40 to 50 year horizon. There is no political system that is capable of making promises 40 to 50 years down the track. Even if we thought that in the early 1990s that um, the, the, the political economy was permanent, the ideological mix of the 1990s was always as it was going to be, we just can't trust 
future governments. We can't trust future generations not to change their mind. Mm. On whatever ideological grounds, maybe they get more socialist, maybe they get fruit, more or free the, market. Or, the, or, or uh, in the case of the current federal government, they just decided they'd like just, more, some more taxation to, revenue. Just to take it. But it's a really good example of what happened with the, with the recent superannuation policy changes as well. Because the government over time, or even maybe you could say the Australian public over time, has changed its idea of what superannuation is supposed to be. Yeah. Originally, compulsory superannuation was for everyone and the pension was the back. Stop. Now the language of the government is that everyone gets the pension and superannuation is the backstop <laughs> or a top-up or, yeah. or whatever it is. So the, the government, maybe the public, maybe the media, academia, the public service, people change their mind. And with a policy that you need decades of certainty, you're just not going to get. The, the, interesting, the point about the pension, I think, is a really interesting one. And I'm just going to lob something out there. It's a little bit maybe controversial. Let's but see what happens. Let's see what isn't, happens. Isn't a pension more honest than what we have? Like I'm opposed to government monopolization of anything. But what we have now with super is really corrupt. It's no one knows where their money's going. No one knows where it's invested. No one knows what the rules are going to be in 10, 20, 30 years time. There is a real prospect that the government will just confiscate your super in 30, 40, 50 years time to justify under the auspiciousness of a budget emergency or some national disaster and they'll just take the money. Isn't a pension system where it says, look, this is public and this is private, isn't the delineation a little bit more honest than what we have? Oh, maybe, maybe. The, the, what I like about the Australian super system is that we actually know the money is there. What has happened in, in the American and the European uh, pension schemes, which work very similar off their payroll tax system, is that the governments have spent the money and now they are paying future pensions out of future tax revenue. Whereas you actually know your money has been taken from you and has been invested probably in the stock market, um, probably earning frank dividends. So you do actually have our, our, our pension system, call it pension in, in scare quotes, is actually largely privatized. Um, and that is actually a good thing. Um, we're, we're, what I would add to, to what Chris was saying about people changing their minds, and I mean, sovereign risk is what you mentioned is, is also a problem, um, is that people didn't think carefully enough about super when they brought it in. There is a 40-year rollout period, and nobody thought that about it. They said, oh, everybody's got super, everybody's hunky-dory. In actual fact, um, people who started working in 1992 haven't stopped, haven't retired yet. So in actual fact is that we haven't seen the, pinch, the, the, the super system actually begin to work yet. We're still in the build-up phase. And it's been unfortunate that governments have, been, have seen this pot of money to be raided. And that is always the problem, the pot of money to be raided. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so, so I take your point, but I still far prefer our super system to the European or the American system whereby it, it, it gets financed uh, out of payroll. I, I guess you could say the superannuation system is basically a giant escrow of which either retirees or the government can dip into. <laughs> so one of, one, of the, one of the things, uh, so there are some, some different views around the table. So one of the, one of the real questions on the table, though, is... Um, so an eloquent defence of some kind of system of uh, compulsory retirement savings there, sync. But uh, the long-term objective is actually to get to not 9.5%, but 12%. Uh, the Productivity Commission has said that uh, that should be uh, delayed until this, the, they've cleaned up things like excessive fees, you know, insurance you don't need, all these things that are actually sucking the savings, particularly out of the low- and middle-income earners' accounts. Uh, Labor Party, uh, backed by the industry funds, definitely wants to keep uh, that that ob objective of 12%. Um, what should the government do? What should it actually say? It seems to be very much prevaricating on this. I, I, I would work backwards and say, well, how much money do people want to have in retirement? And I think if you you if you said 9% nine, 9 I think it actually provides you with a pretty good uh, replacement income. Um, I understand why the funds want to have 12% because they're getting all those they fees clip and the income ticket on the way through. And why the Labor Party wants because they get the kickbacks and the donations and what have you, which is why I would definitely introduce the sole purpose test. Um, but the thing to, to bear in mind is that the entire superannuation system doesn't have to be compulsory. There needs to be a compulsory aspect of it and then you should build up your own retirement savings over and above that. So um, I'm, I'm not too excited about, you know, should be 
nine and a half percent, 11%, 12%, probably 12% is probably on the high side for, for a lot hmm. of people. But I think the, 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 the notion of cleaning it up, yes, is very good. The notion of having some compulsory system is very good. Recognizing that the Australian superannuation system is actually world's best practice um, is also a, a, another place to start. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. I must say, though, uh, just politically, I can't believe that Scott Morrison has has let that left that question open. I would have thought that'd be a clear differentiator this side of the election in a in an election environment where they don't have many clear differentiators. He's not too smart. No, I think the other way to go is to actually um, have a choice to have a band. If you want to have the compulsion aspect, the government can legislate a, a range. So, you say it's between five and fifteen percent. You got to have something in there. But people should be able to, there needs to be some flexibility. It's, the main problem is that the financial needs of people who are 25 are different to the financial needs of people who are 50. So people should be able to smooth their income over their life cycle and having a young person having to do 9.5% and a 55-year-old doing a 9.5% doesn't, doesn't make sense. So young people at a minimum should have flexibility to say, I'm going to put in 3%, um, then I'll go up to 20%. You could even say over the life of your um, entire working life, you have to have a certain percentage of your income in super, but you, you're free to smooth that as you see fit. But I think there needs to be some flexibility. I, I once made the proposition that you should be able to um, borrow your super balance at the risk-free rate in order to put a deposit on a house. I think Singapore has something like that, don't they? Maybe. I'm not sure. But yes, they might do. And I have to. when I proposed that, I think in 2010, uh, the Liberals went absolutely bananas. Why would you do anything so silly? Um, you know, the ability to save is, is a moral imperative. I say, well, hang on. You know, it's, it's uh, young people do actually need the money. And you do actually need to have money in super. Because bear in mind, putting money into super at a young age gives you that compounding interest effect. So, so yes, I, need, I know you need the money for other things. But in actual fact, that is what really gives you bang for buck when you get older. The, mi- the miracle of compound interest. The miracle of compound interest sounds so terribly boring. <laughs> 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 but, but actually, but, but, but borrowing against it at the risk-free rate we would probably free up some liquidity. Yes, particularly when the deposit is the mm. hardest bit of actually yes, getting, getting yes, into home ownership. So being, or you've already got 10% of your income going into super and then you're meant to save on top of that yes, to, and to get the deposit. Yes, mm. for that course which actually didn't get you the job that you wanted anyway so well it depends which university you go to <laughs> our students do very well <laughs> very good okay uh thank you gentlemen and um so that was uh, uh superannuation uh we'll move to uh something a little bit more cultural now um we are of course approaching australia day uh How can you tell yes well there's plenty of chatter not so much about the celebrations of australia day but about uh uh, the continuing uh, interest in its uh, being celebrated on January 26. Uh, I recall being in Sydney in uh, 1988 for the first really big Australia Day when the Hawke government spent a lot of money on, on celebrating it, made it a national celebration. Uh, we had tall ships in Botany Bay and Port Jackson. Uh, and ever since, there's been a running commentary about whether it is appropriate uh, but this week, the IPA released a poll of over a thousand people, and 75% of the respondents believe yes, we should just continue to celebrate Australia Day on January 26. And uh, interestingly, only 10% definitely said that they wanted it to be changed. Um, that's actually a pr- pretty small minority, um, uh, not what you expect from the media coverage. So, is that is that basically debate over, Daniel? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it will be debate over. Uh, one thing is we know from Nazim Taleb, uh, the great author and philosopher, that the, the minority principle, so uh, the idea that the most intolerant minorities tend to win because there's a large sort of majority that's largely apathetic. They say, yeah, we like Australia Day, just like they say, yeah, we like free speech. But when push comes to shove, are they really going to do anything? So what would happen, for example, if a future Labor government said, we're changing Australia Day? Would, it, would anyone really strongly oppose that? Would people go to the streets? Would members lose their seats? I don't think so. So I think that people like the idea, um, but I'm not convinced that they're going to go to the barricades on this type of issue or indeed many other many other important cultural issues. So unfortunately, I don't think it's case closed. But what it does show uh, in the spirit of Brexit and in the spirit of Trump that there is a disconnect between sort of the elite and the establishment people that you know are, are championing the idea that we should move Australia Day and the majority of people that are quite happy to leave it where it is. Yes, indeed. Maybe maybe uh, Triple J will move the hottest 100 back to Australia Day on the basis of this 
survey. Um, Chris Berg, there was there was a reference to free speech in there that, as Daniel said, yes, we like Australia Day and we like free speech. And you've been a great champion of free speech. How did you read that survey? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in that sense, the survey... Um, the RPA survey told us exactly what we know, that um, uh, people, uh, when asked whether they like free speech, um, uh, almost uniformly support it. Something like 93% of people say they support freedom of speech in the survey. Um, uh, un- unfortunately, the challenge with these surveys is is drilling down to, well, what do people actually mean by free speech? And sometimes um, you hear the line or the argument made in, um, a, a, in a lot of circles that, well, hate speech isn't really free speech. Um, I'm all for free speech, but not all speech can be free. Well, yeah, okay. That's a, it, it's basically a tautology. Like I, I like speech when it's free unless it's restricted, which is a good thing. Um, uh, so, so, so there are some serious problems with that. And, and I think that um, uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years is this debate about some speeches, um, some forms of expression, I should say, um, are being seen as out, so outside the pale that they can no longer be considered matters of discussion or debate, but instead we we they, they are so offensive or so harmful or there's some sort of physical consequence of them that that we need to crack down. So uh, I think this does show the enduring cultural power of the idea of free speech, but it certainly doesn't prevent us from having to sort of go trench by trench through every regulation, every control on on speech that, that we have. Eternal vigilance. Um, Sink, uh, as you, you made a reference before, you're obviously a big fan of um, Scott Morrison. Um, he is aware <laughs> of uh, this debate over Australia Day and has uh, uh, picked out uh, the local councils who are refusing to run their citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day. Well, I think making people turn up for work on a public holiday is un-Australian. So um, <laughs> I, I don't know what he's thinking there. Uh, the same with uh, where when he came out and said there will be a, a dress code for Australia Day uh, presentations and and citizenship ceremonies. Now, I actually attended a citizenship ceremony myself many years ago, and I have to say most people actually dressed up now in, in what would have in the old days be called your Sunday best kind of affair. You know, so mm. nobody turned up in thongs and, and, and board shorts and, and all this sort of stuff. It, so it's a big thing becoming a citizen, I would imagine. Yes, you get to meet your members of parliament at the state and federal level. No and, no greater honour. And, and, <laughs> and Ms Gillard shook my hand and said, welcome to Australia. And I'm sure she regretted that in later years. <laughs> <laughs> um, she wanted to revoke. The, 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 the most important thing that I remember from the night were the Australian Electoral Commission uh, officials more or less harassing you to make sure that you'd filled out your, your on, the, on the, the roll register kind of thing um but but all up it's 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 a fairly nice affair you know your your family and friends come and everybody claps and it's a bit of a ceremony and there's speeches and it's it's a you know it's it's a function sort of thing um mine wasn't on australia day um and to be quite honest actually having them on australia day itself is, is seems to me a bit strange you you have them whenever when it's convenient um so it's 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 one of those things that are it's very hard to get yeah, and, excited. And 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 what in if the local councils, if the People's Republic of Yarra or Byron Bay uh, don't want to be part of it, well, fine. There's no yes. particular reason why they should be. What what I don't understand though is how council local councils have authority to to mm. disrespect Australia Day. They aren't they don't have independent democratic legitimacy in and of themselves. They are actually branches of the state government. So why Scott Morrison doesn't pick up the phone and shout at Daniel Andrews, um, say, you know, get your people into into some sort of order or sack them, um, is how I would go about doing things. But on the other hand, um, I think Australia Day, the Australian thing to do is to have a barbecue, sit in your backyard, watch cricket. Um, I wouldn't recommend the Triple J 100. That's an ABC radio station. Um, (laughs) Listen to Corey Bernardi's uh, 100 instead. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sort of do the things that Australians do on on public holidays. And the other firm prediction that I want to make is no matter what it's ever called, the 26th of January will always be a public holiday. And I think that is actually the get out of jail card that a future government will play. They will change the name of... Australia Day on the 26th of January and they will declare some other day to be Australia Day 
And that doesn't worry me either. Because the generic agenda is But, but they, will well, bo- they will I both mean, be public holidays. Well, yeah. see, the thing is, even if they called it the day Sydney was invaded day, um, <laughs> because, I mean, this is also a very Sydney-centric thing. You know, everybody says, you know, 26th of January is invasion day. No, actually, 26th of, of January is the day Sydney was colonised. Um, I, I, I want to point out that. So, so I, I think January, th- this discussion about um, January 26th as the Australia Day, it's, it's basically warring op-eds between The Guardian and The Spectator. Um, and, uh, January, and, and I don't think that we should change the day, but it is a weird day to pick, you know what I mean, as an Australia Day, because it's, um, it, it's not because it was an invasion, which is a category that we've imported from the 20th century and tried to shoehorn into the 18th. It's the establishment of a prison colony or a prison. Actually, it's no. not the establishment of a free country. No. It's, a, it's a prison. It's not... It's, it's a weird thing. Now, and, and in one way you could say that this debate wasn't an invasion, well, is January 26th good, is actually not helping us come to terms with our own history, yes. both in our relationship with Indigenous inhabitants and the, the rather um, unfortunate way we were established. We, we got a military dictatorship. We got our freedoms. We got our liberalism over time, over the next 50, even 100 years, you could say. And it evolved and, and, and we, we got the great values of Western civilization and British institutions and, and so forth. But we didn't get them on that day. No. But on the other hand, of course, the um, establishment of that prison colony did not automatically set in train um, uh, violence against Indigenous people. In fact, um, the, the, the settlement was specifically instructed to maintain good relationships with the existing inhabitants. Um, there was violence, but it was violence that came later, not automatic to the nature of January 26. Mm. I just think this is a, this is a very strange discussion that has, uh, that has dropped into a culture wars pit that is actually preventing us genuinely discussing how we were established, what happened when we were established and what that meant for the 19th and 20th centuries. Yes. That's such an important point about what you said about going into a culture wars pit because the right don't feel that they can compromise at all simply because the left will claim this is a cultural victory and say this is evidence that Australia's history has always been corrupt, violent, racist and so forth. And that's what it's been turned into. And so the possibility of political compromise is basically zero when um, the opponents aren't interested in having a bona fide discussion about, about history because they don't believe there's anything to be discussed. I, I do like Sinclair's proposal for generic January 26th holiday. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, remember can't the old Telstra advert? Oh, that's the day we all take off and watch the cricket. <laughs> but this is said the cricket's on Fox, not free-to-air now, which is un-Australian. And, uh, get Fox. And, no. uh, Why you're watching free-to-air television, I, I don't know. And the ABC. I'll, I'll watch I mean, Fox if, you, uh, if you're happy to uh, payroll it. So I just want to come back to Chris's point because um, these, these critiques, if you like, uh, many, of them are, many of them are valid, of course. But uh, this, uh, I mentioned the, the Hawke government's uh, push for Australia Day and they created what had been a New South Wales-centric day and made it national. It was a conscious exercise in nation building, um, ironically from um, uh, a social democratic government, but they said, well, we need to be a nation. Um, but yeah, and, so, and, but, and, so, and in, in many ways, it goes back to the famous book uh, that Eric Hobsbawm edited on the invention of tradition. So all the things that you associate with Scotland, you know, the haggis, the, the tartans, the kilts, um, huge bearded men bearing their asses. You know, this, this was an invented tradition. No, my ancestors really did that. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, yeah, any Saturday night um, down at down Davidson. Bank Place. Uh, Davison household. Uh, but... Uh, and so that they they are consciously invented. So the it's, and it's very easy to critique and say, oh, you know, many, many of these things are made up, and it's not really the day for all of Australia. But to build a nation, and it'd be better not done by governments. But everything's done by government in Australia. Very few things arise spontaneously. It seems. Um, having done that, I, I I think there's a lot of cultural capital that goes into it, and and so that's. Uh, I guess the best argument for defence is not that it's objectively true that Australia Day is this thing that was handed down with the tablets from the mountaintop, but that it is actually an opportunity for to express a sense of nationhood. But that it's 
it's not a coincidence or it's not strange that it was a Hawke government thing because the idea of an Australian nationalism, as a, 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 the idea of um, uh, being patriotic or nationalistic about Australia specifically was a Labour Party project throughout the 20th century because on the other side, on the Conservative side or on the, um, the Liberal Party side, it was always, well, we're part of the British Empire, we've got these ties back to Britain, we're not necessarily a colony, but, but there is a mother country. Um, and so it's not really a surprise. And, and also the states, uh, more, more affinity for the states well. well. yeah, that, that, that's true. But I also, I, I also think that, that, is a, um, that that's a, almost a, a 19th century globalist mm. approach to, um, uh, to our relationship with the rest of the world, which now I think we've completely lost. And so, so the bearers of patriotism or the bearers of nationalistic pride and now the right, the left have their other interesting complicated obsessions, but the idea of a left-wing patriotism is, is, is quaint. You see some left-wing thinkers come up with it. In fact, Tim Supomasan was trying to rebuild an Australian patriotism before he... Um, uh, join the Human Rights Commission, but but that's that's an interesting intellectual exercise, a, a left wing patriotism. Now it's now it's entirely on the right. Well, we'll see what happens, and let's all make sure that we celebrate Australia Day in your board we, shorts. In, in your board, board shorts, shorts. Yeah. We, we, we can do that. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Um, that has covered three of the big big topics of the day. Uh, we might just close with something a, a little bit uh, more personal. Sink, what have you been reading, watching, or listening to? Well, I've been listening to the soundtrack to A Star Is Born by Lady Gaga, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. a very, very good album. I, I have to say I've quite enjoyed it. Um, I've actually been uh, binge-watching some uh, TV series. So I binge-watched The Pacific, you know, the story of the Second World War yes. against the Japanese. Um, harrowing, harrowing TV series, but magnificent. Um, really enjoyed some it. Some of it shot in Melbourne. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and uh, supported by the Victorian government. So be patriotic and go out and <laughs> reclaim your tax dollars. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, but it, it, it was it, it was magnificent. And then the other thing. Now I'm a bit late to this. Um, I binge watched the first season of The Handmaid's Tale, um, the, the 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 TV series of the the book by Margaret Atwood. Um, I saw the movie many many years ago, but it wasn't particularly memorable but this tv series is magnificent as well Mm. Uh, what i love about this tv series is that the villains are portrayed as religious fanatics but in actual fact they're environmentalists Um, they (laughs) talk a lot about what they've done for the environment and the other thing that you see is when the handmaiden and her, her other fellow handmaidens go to the supermarket there's lots of plain packaging um, so these are villains which right-wingers can actually get behind and say those are evil, evil people. Um, um, you know, but so, so the, the whole thing of them being religious fanatics is, is kind of oversold a bit, but if you actually just look beyond that, um, they are villains that we can easily recognise and know, and this is what the future could very well, well that is, be That like. is a take I have not heard before. <laughs> you think, I, will, I will have another look at that now in season two. Oh, the two up. and fro's of the culture war can be very good. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, how about you, Daniel? Uh, I've been watching a lot of cricket. Um, I've been watching the Test cricket, the one-day cricket, the Big Bash cricket. Um, what's is interesting... No, some of it's on free to air still. Oh. It's um, I think all cricket should be on free to air. To be honest, I'm a bit of a communist when it comes to that. It's one thing that unites us is uh, cricket. But anyway, um, but what's interesting is how bad Big Bash has gotten. I don't know if anyone else is. I know Chris is really interested in cricket, so he'll be pretty interested in my exegesis on Big Bash. But very quickly, in t- Test cricket, which is proper cricket, was always based on the batter defends and the bowler attacks. So that's why they say the the bowler is coming into the attack and the batsman defends his wicket. Now it's the exact opposite with Big Bash, which is the bowlers and the fielders will defend. That's why they always have the people on the boundary and they're trying to defend and the batsmen attack, so they're just trying to smash smash the ball. Right? That's why it's called Big Bash. Interestingly, also in Big Bash, they don't actually use the word cricket. There's no cricketing in the actual marketing of Big Bash. It's just Big Bash. Um, so it's not really... It's big, its own sport. It's its own just thing. Big bash, it's yeah, just yeah. Big Bash. But <laughs> what's interesting is how bad it's gotten. So the first few series of Big Bash, we're up to season eight, 
was entertaining because batsmen smashed it because bowlers hadn't figured out how to bowl in that format. They were still bowling in one-day or test format. Now they figured out how to bowl, and they're really good at bowling, and the batsmen are really bad at batting. So you'll see like seven... For <laughs> so there's no bashing. Anymore. No, it's the exact opposite. It's how cricket used to be. So you'll see seven for 40 off 10 overs. It's like, this is terrible. Turn it off. So I think Big Bash will die in five years. That's my... They have gutsy calls on, on the Big Bash, and my gutsy call is Big Bash will die in five years because it's now a terrible sport. You heard it here first. So in uh, episode 250 of Looking Forward, we will uh, uh, pull, pull that clip out and, <laughs> and see how you went. All right, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I've watched the show My Brilliant Friend. So there's the TV oh, adaptation yes. of the Elena Ferranti novel, My Brilliant um, friend, which is which is actually it's quite a beautiful show and, and it's worth watching and I think it's on Foxtel at the moment. But what I really am listening to is the soundtracks or the the score and the scores by Max Richter. Max Richter is a um, combination classical um, and 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 film score composer and and it's just a really stunning piece of music in in a world in which there's just so much brilliant soundtrack work and I I listen to soundtracks basically constantly whenever I'm 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 writing because I don't know whether you know this but writing is very boring and so it's <laughs> good to listen to movie soundtracks because movie soundtracks are exciting so you listen to these movies oh it's like I'm watching Indiana Jones again you know <laughs> except I'm sitting at my desk at work um, uh, but but I have to recommend my brilliant friend the Max Rick the soundtrack is magnificent as is the show itself um uh everything seems to be not on free to air although uh i, th I think uh handmade style was on sbs originally can get it on sbs i view um netflix uh, also has some great stuff uh shout out for a movie uh called roma had very limited release in cinemas uh it's uh set in mexico city uh, it's from a Mexican director, Alfonso Cuaron, um, and it's about a middle-class family in Mexico in the 1970s, uh, and the central character is their living nanny, um, stroke maid, um, uh, Cleo, and it's just stunning, hard to describe. Um, it's in uh, black and white, and uh, it could have easily descended into some tropes about you know how exploited... Uh, this woman is. Um, she's up from an indigenous background uh, in in Mexico, but there is so much love in this mu in this movie. And the director uh, who directed Gravity uh, was Sandra Bullock, which is amazing. Uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which <laughs> apparently is the best of that otherwise interminable series. Um, but he can. It consistently confounds the cliches. Everything he sets up a scene. I don't know whether this is deliberate or just because it really is a personal vision. But you expect in a Hollywood sort of way that it'll, it'll go a certain way, and then it never does, and you just you're wrecked by the end of it. So I um, I commend that to anyone with access to Netflix. And uh, if you don't have it, go around to your mate's place and watch it there. Thank you for that. So that's a, that's a bit of a, a light lighter finish to the show. Very much appreciated. Um, I'd like to thank first of all the, our guests Sinclair Davidson, thank you, Daniel Wild, thank you, and my co-host Chris Berg. I'd also like to thank uh, James Bolt, who's been our producer today. Thank you, James. Uh, this port podcast has been brought to you uh, by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, you can certainly go to our website, ipa.org.au, and join up there. Um, we joined other illustrious, and you'll also find information about other illustrious IPA podcasts, great books, the Young IPA podcasts. Um, you can get online, you can uh, subscribe to our stuff, you can become a member. Uh in terms of the podcast itself, depending on how you're listening to this, if you not, haven't already subscribed on iTunes or any of the great podcast platforms, please do so now so that you get notified about our next show. Uh, and I should also finish by saying that anything you've heard on this show is not necessarily the view of the IPA. <laughs> but thank Particularly you, gentlemen. on Big Bash. That's <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's an IPA. Yeah, we might endorse that one. Very good. You've been listening to Looking Forward. I'm Scott Hargraves. Talk to you next week. <laughs>